Welcome to This Is Us Week 3. This is where we've been. Uh, we are all about loving God and loving people. That's what's about here. That's what we, our mission is. That's who we are. That's what emanates from us. Love God, love people. Then our first core value was Jesus. Jesus. We're a Jesus church that we put a preeminent place on his life, example, and teachings. And uh, it, Jesus is our truth. Then kingdom. And kingdom doesn't just mean heaven when we die, but rather uh, God's way and God's sway in our lives and in our world. It's bringing heaven here, not just escaping earth to get to heaven, but rather grabbing heaven and shining light into darkness and bringing heaven here. We're a church about diversity, and uh, that means socioeconomic status, that means race, that means uh, gender, that means opinions, that there's a diversity, a plethora of opinions here that, that uh, form prodigal church. And that we are a church of belonging, where you belong before you believe. Uh, that as is, just as you are, you belong. And uh, this is our, this is a football moment, right? This is who we are. This is who we feel God's called us to be. And our core value this morning uh, is, first one is real, being real, being real, being vulnerable, being authentic, being honest, whatever you want to call it, we believe that it's, it's essential to our spiritual lives. Honesty, transparency. Uh, hopefully you saw that in this first video with these kids who don't know how to be deceptive and they just say it. Do you like my haircut? No, no. Um, there are three places where Americans pretend to be somebody else. Uh, the fancy hotel, number two, the car dealership, number three, church on Sunday mornings. These are the three places where we pretend to be somebody we're not, where we project to be somebody we're not. God knows that we're all pretenders. The church has been so good at being so fake. You all have been a part of this, myself included. You, we've all mastered the art of arguing and screaming at each other on the drive to church, then you pull up to church, and you get out with a smile on your face. No one knows. <laughs> Honey, there's the pastor. Go say hello. I know you were just fighting in your minivan before you showed up. We've all been there. Historically, the Christian church has not been great at creating spaces for people to be authentic. We're really good at people telling their stories of victory. Traditionally, when you hear a story being told in an environment like this, it goes something like this. I used to be a mess, but now I'm not. Praise God. That's typically the story. And those are important stories. Sometimes we need to see that there's light at the end of the tunnel. Sometimes we need to be inspired. But what we don't often hear at church is, and perhaps maybe even a more important story, is life is crazy right now. It feels like my prayers are not making a difference. I'm going to keep trying, and I could use some help. That's a story. That's a story. That's a good story. But we don't share that. For some reason, we feel like we're only highlighting Jesus when we highlight victory or success. That's just not life. It's filled with ups and downs. Our lives show Jesus in more than just our victories. Jesus is seen in our everyday, in the ho-hum struggle of just keeping going when it's difficult. Jesus is, is seen when we're on top of the mountainside, hands raised, because everything's amazing, and Jesus is seen when we're holding on for dear life. We're not always on the top of the mountain, but there's joy 
And there's Jesus, even in the valleys. Just be real. Just be real. Uh, the desire to know and be fully known can only be satisfied by Jesus. Everything else fails. We talked about that a little bit last week with this belonging thing, but we want, you belong as is, but let's be as we are. Let's not pretend. We want to be a church where we can be honest about our doubts, about our questions, about our faith. Honesty with others and honesty with God. Sometimes we have intellectual questions about the Bible, and typically the church seems to be the worst place to ask those questions. You can't ask that. You can't question the Bible. You, you want to come across as faithful, spiritual. And so we have these questions, this inner dialogue of, is, I don't know if that makes any sense. Or, man, my, my spirit presses pause when, when, when this happens in my life or when I see this kind of suffering. And we never fully engage those questions because we feel it's unspiritual. Let me put it this way. Human reason is not against the life of faith. You don't have to check your brains at the door. Going to church, so I'm going to turn off critical thinking and my intelligence, and I'm just going to walk in and do it all by faith. Human reason isn't contrary to God's word. You don't have to turn off uh, our mind, our intellect, to live a life of faith. God gives us a brain. We should probably use it. Look at Mark 12, 30. It says this. You must love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind and strength. Mind. Mind. It's important to think through the reasons we believe what we believe and the reasons we don't believe certain things. In eighth grade, I took a biology class. And the teacher was passionate about the sciences. The sciences. He would say something in class, and an inquisitive student would go, why? And then he would say, give some kind of explanation that partly supported his conclusion. And if pressed, he would get agitated and say, just trust me, okay? It's true. Just trust me. And that just trust me never sat right with me. For some of you in this room, some of the people that you know and care about, you came to church, and instead of hearing reasons why to believe what you believe, what you heard was, just trust me. Just trust me. And it turned you off to faith, and it turned your friends and family off from a life-giving relationship with Jesus. And if that's you this morning, there's hope, because all truth is God's truth, and we shouldn't be afraid of it. I was a youth pastor for 11 years. I can't tell you how many people I know that are born and raised in the church and then they're protected from the bad guys in the world out there and they're safe inside the walls of the local church and then they're told what to believe. All these things are good things. But then they go to college. And then they meet people much different than them. They start to see and encounter truth in unexpected people and in unexpected places and it doesn't seem to line up with the world that they were always taught. And so because this one thing isn't true, and it was always told to me it was true, then I throw out the whole faith. I throw the baby out with the bathwater. And often the, the baby is Jesus. The whole thing must be a lie, and they walk away. The church must be a place to wrestle with the deepest questions of life and faith. The church should be the best place to ask questions. Not where your hand's going to get slapped and say, zip it, you don't ask those kinds of questions here. No, we got to be real. 
Questions are good. Check this out. In Acts 17, the Apostle Paul is discipling this new group of Jewish believers in a town called Berea. And this is what the author Luke has to say about it. Look at 1711. This is just astounding. Now, the Berean Jews were of more noble character than those in Thessalonica. For they received the message with great eagerness and examined the scriptures every day to see if what Paul said was true. Interesting. Luke could have written, the Berean Jews were more noble character because they received the message with great eagerness and they trusted everything that the Apostle Paul said. No questions asked because he was the Lord's anointed. Doesn't say that. No. It's not what it says. The Berean Jews were positive skeptics. They had a posture of, I've got questions I'm eager to find answers to. Thank you, preacher man Paul. Don't mind if I go double check. It, that is seen as a beautiful way of learning in the New Testament. It's applauded as a way for people to grow. We should never have blind faith where there is a paid professional holy man standing in front saying, thus saith the Lord, and you say, well, the Lord's anointed has spoken, so I will believe it. No, we want you to be engaged, Bibles open. Not just blindly believing something, but to know the reasons why we believe it. My goal is not to teach us what to think, but, but how to think, and to encourage us to read the Bible Jesusly. And we learn together. It's okay to run the ramp of reason before taking the leap of faith. It's okay. It's okay. There's nothing wrong with that. Let's love God with our minds. Now, God has a particular heart, passion, concern, presence among the lowly, the hurting, and the suffering in our world. I want to thank you so much for your generosity to... Malawi, Africa. Many of you know that um, I, I spent some extensive time there, living there for six months when I was 19, and then leading um, eight or nine teams back over the, la the last uh, 15 years to go and minister in those villages. And our church uh, supports uh, a, a Christian missionary primary school in a rural village with no running water, no electricity. Uh, we support uh, an international missions organization that works in southeastern um, Africa and in Malawi, and we support an orphanage in the southern part of the country. For the first 10 years of me being a Christian, how did I miss over 2,000 Bible verses on God's heart for the poor? Never heard of it. Well, God helps those who help themselves. Actually, I looked for that verse in the Bible, and I couldn't find it. That's actually not in there. But what is in there is over 2,000 passages of Scripture describing God's passionate, loving, gracious heart for the hurting, the oppressed, the sick, the lowly, and the poor in our world. And that should be our heart as well. This is our sixth and final core value. It's suffering. And it doesn't sound like a great core value, right? Jesus, kingdom, real, belonging, diversity, suffering. But it's, it's our heart. It's a part of who we are. It's who, part of who we feel God's called us to be. We aren't going to be a church that runs from those who are hurting. We will be a church that runs to them. This is justice, making the wrongs of the world right. And this vision of biblical justice doesn't start with Jesus in the New Testament, but rather it's seen throughout the entire narrative of Scripture. The, the Hebrew word for justice is the word mishpat, and it means 
justice, making the wrongs in our world right. And there is this amazing passage in Jeremiah. And if you want to see God's heart for the poor in the Old Testament, it's seen throughout, and we're going to actually look at some verses in the law that describe it. But in the prophets, it's just abundantly clear. God calls out hypocrisy. He calls out um, people abusing and neglecting those who are hurting. So this prophet Jeremiah is speaking to a new king, and the king's name is Shalom. And Shalom's father, Josiah, was a godly man, and Shalom, on the other hand, was not. And this is a big deal to God. And so God speaks to Shalom through the prophet Jeremiah, and it says this in verse 13, Jeremiah 22. Woe to him who builds his palace by unrighteousness, his upper rooms by injustice, making his own people work for nothing, not paying them for their labor, he says, I will build myself a great palace with spacious upper rooms. So he makes large windows in it, panels in it, panels it with cedar and decorates it in red. Does it make you a king to have more and more cedar? We could translate that. Does it make you a king? Does it make you significant to have more and more property? Did not your father have food and drink? Did, not, did I not take care of your dad? He did what was right and just, and so all went well with him. Then look at verse 16. He defended the cause of the poor and the needy, and so all went well. Is that not what it means to know me, declares the Lord? This concept of justice and knowing God are so inextricably linked in Scripture that the question can legitimately be raised, could practicing justice and helping the poor and the needy in our world, could that be equated with knowing God? Verse 16, I want to read it again. He defended the cause of the poor and the needy, so all went well. Is that what it means to know me? Is that not what it means to know me, declares the Lord? You know what that verse tells me? That someone who doesn't consider themselves a Christian can know God more than someone who said they've been a Christian their whole life and they were born and raised in the church. You could be knee-deep in the church and Christianity your whole life and still not know God. And we're going to talk more about that next week, that religiosity that Jesus calls us out of when we look at the story of the prodigal son on our birthday, our two-year birthday next week. Don't miss it. It's going to be incredible. we got all kinds of things planned. Invite everybody you know. It's just going to be phenomenal next week at 9 and 1030. But we see God's heart for the poor and the suffering also in the law. We don't just see it in the prophets and Jeremiah calling out um, these selfish kings. We also see it in the law. Look at this passage in Leviticus. It says this in chapter 23. When you reap the harvest of your land, do not reap to the very edges of your field or gather the gleanings of your harvest. Leave them for the poor and for the foreigner residing among you. I am the Lord your God. Now, this, this passage should not be taken literally. If you're a farmer, the Bible is not commanding you to not harvest the edges of your property, otherwise you are sinning. It's not what the passage is saying. The passage should not be taken literally, but it should be taken seriously. What is the embedded principle in this precept? What is the point? What's the heart behind it? Well, in the ancient world, the poor gathered in the countryside. Uh, they would gather in the countryside where food uh, and crops were more available, and they would avoid the dangers and often unsanitary conditions of the major metropolitan areas. 
So to an agricultural society like Israel, by not gleaning every piece of fruit from your harvest, you're helping feed the poor in your land. God says, do that. But 3,000 years later, the poor are not often found in the countryside, are they? Where are they? They're gathered in more urban centers. They flock to urban centers now, to cities. So when we read the passage of Scripture, we don't have the luxury of saying, well, I'm not a farmer, so the Scripture doesn't apply to me. What God is saying way back in Leviticus is not, don't reap the edges of your harvest. What God is saying is, take care of the poor. Take care of the poor among you. Bless those that are in need. We can't selectively go, read this passage and go, well, I'm not a farmer, so it's in Leviticus, it's weird, it's the law, it's the old stuff. No, no, no. What is the embedded principle within the precept? And it is God's heart is for the hurting, the poor, the suffering in our world, and that should be our heart as well. Uh, it has been said that many years ago lived a young and gifted woman named Sophia, and she received a vision from the Lord to in, in, interpret and translate God's word into her own language. And this is right when the Gu Gutenberg press had just started to come about, but they were very expensive. Uh, and the Bible was in Latin. Most Bibles were in Latin, and they were kept under lock and key within their local church. And Sophia was from a poor farming village on the outskirts of the city, and so the task seemed impossible. She would have to raise a vast sum of money to purchase the necessary printing equipment, rent a building to house it, and then hire scholars with the ability to translate the Bible from Latin into her own common tongue. So however the impossibility of the task, it didn't sway her the least. She received her vision from God, so she sold all the items that she had and began to live on the streets and begging for the money to translate God's word into her language. And it proved to be a long and difficult task for Sophia. There were few who gave generously, but most gave little because they had little. And it, it involved great personal suffering to her own life, and it took a toll on her. Over the next 15 years, but the money began to accumulate. Shortly before the plans to buy the printing press could be set in motion, a dreadful flood devastated a nearby town, destroying people's homes, livelihood. And when news reached Sophia, she gathered up what she had raised and she spent it on food for the hungry, material to help rebuild lost homes, and basic provisions for the dispossessed. And eventually the town began to recover from the natural disaster that had destroyed it. And so Sophia left that town to go back to her task, all the while remembering the vision that God had implanted on her heart to translate God's word for her people. Many more years passed. And they took a toll on the beautiful Sophia. Uh, but now there were many who were touched by her love and her dedication and although people were poor, the money began to accumulate. However, once again, after nine more years, a disaster struck and a plague descended upon the city, stealing the lives of thousands, leaving many children without family or support. By now, Sophia was tired, and, but without hesitation, she got all the money that she had collected over the years to buy medicines for the sick, homes for the orphans, and land where the dead could be buried safely. And only when the shadow of the plague left did she go about again to the streets to achieve the vision God had given her. Finally, shortly before Sophia's death, she was able to gather the money required for the printing press, the building, 
and to hire the translators. And although by this time she herself was close to death, she lived long enough to see the Bibles printed and distributed in her own language. And it is said to this day that Sophia had actually accomplished her task of translating and distributing the Word of God three times in her life rather than simply once. The first two being more beautiful and radiant than the last. It's true. If you are a Christian and you are never helping the poor or the hurting or the made fun of or the losers or the loners or the suffering or the sick, you're doing it wrong. You're doing this Christianity thing wrong. When Christianity started, it was, it was Christians who were known for helping the hurting. When a disease or a disaster spread throughout a city, the Romans would flee the city and Christians would rush into it at the cost of their own lives. So let's get real practical. As followers of Jesus, how do we respond to, to this? We got to develop a conditioned reflex. A conditioned reflex is different than a natural reflex, right? A natural reflex, if there's a burning stove and you put your hand on it, you pull it away immediately, right? You didn't have to learn that. You didn't have to grow and practice that. It's just a natural response, right? Natural reflex. A conditioned reflex is different. It's learned. Like stepping on the brakes when you see a red light. That is something that you have to learn. When my son Dex hits the Buzz Lightyear toy and the laser happens, he doesn't hit the brake because he sees a red light. No. No, that's, that's a learned practice. It's something that becomes instinct. And as Christians, we have to develop a conditioned reflex. When we see someone hurting, when we see someone struggling, when we see someone alone, we, we have a conditioned response so that in that moment, we do something to help. We see a need in our, in our natural response is not turn our eyes away, fiddle with our radio, roll up the window, lock the doors. No, our conditioned response is to go, to help. Maybe it's someone in your work. Maybe it's someone who gets made fun of your work. It's going to take work, but eventually you'll stop at red lights and it'll be natural. Eventually, it will become a natural thing for you to show love to those who are hurting. Someone in your office, they might be an outcast, befriend them. Someone in your circle of friends, reach out to them. Someone in your neighborhood's got their home broken into, do a yard sale and give them the profits. Is there someone hurting in your life? The response to today's message is, let's do something. Is there someone in your life that's hurting, that's going through some stuff? What can you do to help? Practically. Maybe it's a card. Would they be blessed to experience a place like this? Maybe you invite them to the birthday party next week. Hey, next week our church is having this big birthday party. There's like Krispy Kreme donuts there. You should come. One of my favorite comedies is the movie Groundhog Day. Bill Murray, Andy McDowell. It's a great movie. Phil Connors is a weatherman. He's got bad attitude, even worse manner, manners. And he's reporting on Groundhog Day, uh, and 
he, he hated it. He hated go interviewing Pakistani Phil. He hated the town, didn't like anything. And after the shoot, he couldn't wait to get out because uh, uh, he hated it so much. And as he's driving away, it's bad weather. He gets locked. He has to stay in there. There was an attractive boss that he had in Andy McDowell. So he didn't mind staying there at least one more night. And he woke up only to relive the same day again and again and again and again. Same day. Same things. Uh, he tried many times to beat the system. He would take advantage of things that he knew, learned the day before. But over and over again, he woke up to a new day ter after each terrible mistake. And now, it also gave him some advantages, right? Especially in approaching this, this, this cute producer. And so he started to ask her questions one day, remembering those responses, things she likes, things she doesn't like, and then he would try and woo her the very next day. But each day, she discovered he was just a hypocrite, mouthing words to win her, and she would slap him. So he slapped every night, every night, slapped, back to back to back to back to back, until he gave up trying to be who he was not. So he begins to learn to play new things and learns to play the piano, changes his attitude. He begins to enjoy the town. He begins to help people instead of hurt people. And when that happened, the producer fell in love with the new Phil Connors. The weather cleared up, and it was a new day. He stopped pretending to be something he is not, and he actually started becoming the person he was pretending to be. Don't pretend. Become. Become the kind of person you want to be. Don't pretend to be that person. Actually be that person. Let's get real. Let's get real. And it starts with us getting real with each other, getting real with God, and helping those who are hurting. I want to invite Noe and the band to come up. No matter who you are at this moment, in this place, don't pretend, become. You might have some doubts, that's okay. Even in the midst of suffering, that's okay. In the midst of questions, that's okay. God's there, and God's here now. Somehow, someway, even when we vent to God from the deepest places of who we are, God, why is this happening? God, why aren't you answering my prayers? God, where are you in the midst of this? Somehow, someway, God is still present and draws us closer to him in the midst of that. It shifts our hearts from something, uh, from our own problems to our creator. We're going to sing a song right now uh, that I, I remember singing when I was in high school. It's an old song. It's a song called Blessed Be Your Name. And this song was written by a worship leader named Matt Redman. And he wrote it coming out of a very difficult circumstance and reflecting on a difficult circumstance when he was young. See, he was abused. And he began to question God in the midst of all of that. And years later, he thinks that even in the midst of the terrible suffering that he had to endure. No matter what, God's still good. God can still bring about good things. So the song, it's just honest. It's honest. It says, God, you give and take away. My heart will choose to say, blessed be your name. Even in the midst of, of loss, even in the midst of struggle, Lord, blessed be your name. When the land is plentiful, blessed be your name. When the streams are amazing, blessed be your name. In the desert, blessed be your name. On the mountaintop, blessed be your name. I don't know where you are. If you're in one of those valleys and life is terrible and life, it sucks and it's difficult and you've asked and God doesn't seem like he's answering at all, may the name of the Lord still be praised in the midst of suffering. Maybe you're on the mountaintop. 
enjoy it, but just know it'll go, it'll turn around. That's life, up and down. But may the name of the Lord still be praised in the midst of our difficulties, in the midst of our sufferings, and may we be able to shine the light and love of Jesus in the midst of our own circumstances, no matter how dire. Would you stand as we declare this together?